Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. I'm joined in the studio by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Seth Jason, James Early, and Shannon Zimmerman. Guys, happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, Chris. Chris. On today's show, we'll look at Google's options, Twitter's valuation, and get a sneak preview of Too Big to Fail, the sequel. And as always, we'll share three stock ideas on our radar. But we begin with this week's G20 meeting in Pittsburgh. We didn't want to, but the G20 is made up of countries representing roughly 90% of the world's output, so we kind of felt obliged. In advance of this serious gathering of world leaders, U.S. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner went for laughs when he said America's days of spending too much and saving too little are over and that other countries shouldn't count on American consumers to buy their exports to drive growth. <laughs> or at least I... He didn't really say that. You're I, I think that he was up, going right? for laughs, wasn't he? Does he... Does he know what the United States is? Can he find it on a map? So are, are we buying Secretary well, Geithner's statement? If you have an opportunity to talk tough, then why not talk tough? I think that that's what he's doing. You know, Right now, uh, uh, American consumers are deleveraging. They're saving more th- than they have uh, in quite a long while. How long that's going to last? I don't think it's going to last very long. If and when things return to some semblance of normalcy, consumers will do what they do, which is spend out the wazoo. And the irony here is that we're... we're we're sort of conflicted. We're supposed to save because we've been spending like there's no tomorrow, but yet consumer spending is is such a huge part of the GDP. We're supposed to borrow more and spend more now to, to get the economy kickstarted again. So, you know, I'm not sure what to do as an American here. And let me point out one thing. China, you know, everybody bashes China, but China only actually owns 5%. Of, of U.S. Treasury. So, yes, it is funneling us a lot of money, but it's not maybe as much as, as some people think. I have a couple of points on this. The, the first is that I'm not sure Americans can stop spending. And the reason for that is a little bit complex. I don't know if I can distill it. And, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a, a thesis that Bruce Greenwald delivered here at a talk at Full HQ, which is that there are all these company, or countries like China, Korea, Germany, that have these huge uh, savings in them. And they have to put that savings into something. It tends to be things like U.S. Treasuries. As long, so long as that happens, that is going to keep the yields on those on those instruments low, which will keep borrowing costs low here. And, and so it almost, it, it is inevitable that Americans will continue to borrow and spend because that's just the way it goes. It's sort of the world economy is kind of a zero sum game in that way. And the other thing I wanna point out is that I'm not sure all consumers are deleveraging and I, I think Shannon would probably agree. A lot of consumers are toast and they probably deserve to be, they screwed up. But everybody else, including people in this room, uh, we all kind of flinched, and businesses did the same thing. And so once, once we come out of our shells, there will be some spending, and it may not be the same thing that we saw before, but I don't think it's, it's wise to base extrapolations of what the new normal will look like on sort of the panic reaction, and we're still in that. What will it take for us to learn our lesson, though? I mean, how bad would things have to get? I mean, things weren't that bad this time. I mean, it seems like the recession was over pretty quickly. I, that's That one's yeah. above my pay grade, as they say. Well, and, and, and Seth's uh, right to, to say that, you know, selectively people are going to be able to continue to spend because they did flinch and, and, and pull back. But in the aggregate, you know, it's hard to see how the consumer does come back uh, when uh, unemployment is still within spending distance of 10%. And with an economy that is powered to the tune of 70% by consumer activity, uh, you know, how, how does that happen if people are still worried about their jobs, worried about home equity wealth that's evaporated? Yeah, it, it won't happen for a while. Seth, you bought a house recently. I mean, is any chance you could like flip that house and buy another just to get things cooking? <laughs> I really ought to. You know, oddly enough, in my neighborhood, houses move when they're priced correctly. Uh, but there are a couple more that have been sitting on the market for months because the people there have no idea that they're 20% over, overpriced. Fair you should enough. let them know. Just knock on the door there. Yeah, anonymous note. 
former Fed Chief Paul Volcker told Congress this week that the president's plan to overhaul the financial system would preserve the policy of too big to fail and could lead to future bailouts. Volcker wants a stricter separation between banks that hold deposits and investment banks and said that any safety net should be limited to commercial banks and not include investment banks. Seth, is this a good plan? I like it, but it's it ain't gonna happen. It's our it's already really you can't wave a magic wand and get it done. <laughs> it's already ain't happening. I guess is the way to put it. The commercial banks and the investment banks are all mixed together. Too big to fail has been codified. In some ways, it's inevitable. Nobody is going. Nobody, no matter how tough anyone talks, nobody in a position to make policy or be reelected is going to let another layman situation happen. I really keep hoping that we will circle back to it. Once things are have been stable for a while, I don't know if that'll happen. You know, to quote Herman's Hermit, second verse, same as the first. And so you know, Volcker was right before, he's right now, but it, uh, it's not going to happen. Yeah, the idea of not bailing out an institution that is definitionally too big to fail is kind of like an oxymoron. I mean, if you, I guess by analogy, build a building and, and the fire escapes are a certain size and then somebody comes into the building who's maybe a little too portly to make it out the escape, I mean... You have to pull them aside and just have a talk. I think we have to nip the problem in the bud. And, and, and you know, if, if, if an entity is too big for us to bail out, it's, it's too big in general if, if it's going to be able to cause problems of that magnitude. Now, I, you know, I, I seem to recall when I was in my secure, undisclosed location that we call Montreal, <laughs> we, we had a, a similar uh, conversation about Lehman. And I thought my colleagues here were uh, in favor of Jim Rogers' position, which was, oh, we, sh- we were right to let it fail. That's the one thing we got right. Lehman was not too big to fail, I would yeah, say. That's, that's yeah, that's the thing. And there are others that aren't, but they've let, they've sort of, they've let some of these that weren't too big to fail combine entities that are now too big to fail. And and this was this idea I had right before the podcast, which is maybe this pay cap thing makes some sense. And here's how I'm looking at it. If you are on this special list and you are a CEO of a bank that is considered too big to fail, <coughs> Jamie Dimon, uh, <laughs> all you other guys, you get paid a couple hundred Gs a year and that's it. And here's the reasoning behind that. See if see if this makes any sense. It might it might not. The argument against pay caps is that these guys are so talented that you'll lose them to other places if you don't pay them enough. I say, good. If you're too big to fail, take these great talents that you claim to have, put them to work somewhere else, you gather up all the business, and then these banks that are too big to fail can naturally shrink on their own. Let's see if you really can walk the walk. But if then once you have like the least competent, lowest paid employees running the best bank, like, like how, the 14 how many, year old driving a Mack truck or something? Yeah, I don't know. I think there's people who'd be willing to run those things for a few hundred Gs or maybe a, a, maybe a million a year. This is obviously just a thought exercise, but I really believe that these people do not deserve what they're getting. They're part of a club. And that's just the way it is. Uh, how much less competent could they could they possibly be? <laughs> it's, the, it's the same perverse logic of the retention bonuses at AIG. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. Who wants to retain those guys? The Wall Street Journal reported this week that Google repriced 7.6 million employee stock options back in March, three days before the shares hit their low point. The average strike price was around $522 a share. The options were repriced at around 308 Google's share price at the time. The company said the move was important for employee retention. Google's trading <laughs> back up around $500 these days. So if you do the math, as the journal did, this move is going to cost shareholders around $1.5 billion. James, this, this just doesn't smell right. 
you know, a lot of companies do this. Uh, it's 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 not as bad, let's say, as, as backdating options, but it has a similar effect. I mean, Google happened to do this at the worst possible time. Let me point out uh, two things. First of all, I mean, this the, the negative thing, obviously, is that this is pure dilution for investors, or the delta is, excuse me, b- between the cash received and, and, and the option price. You know, what's, what's commonly called dilution but is not is is when companies just issue shares and this is kind of a, kind of a tangent but it's an important tangent i think this brings up cuz so they get to use that yeah, money they get the cash if i issue shares for $100 a share for you know uh, you know how many shares i mean i get that money but if i give it away in options and if i'm getting $20 per per share that's really worth $100 the stock price then i've got $80 of dilution so what google just did is is fairly dramatically increase the amount of dilution uh, to its existing owners and, and and, and is it worth it? I mean, probably not. Yeah, absolutely odious practice to, to reprice options, and it sort of underscores the way in which Google really is a story stock. And so, you know, there's a uh, people want to be invested in Google in the same way that people want to be invested in Apple, but there's not, at least relative to Apple, any there. There, Google is an ad sales company and gets what 95, 96 percent of its revenue from ad sales, which is a cyclical market. So they have to be constantly innovating to uh, attract the eyeballs. And that by they, innovate, that they do. you mean buying other innovative companies? Well, they have some <laughs> interesting products. I use them a million it's times a day. As I bet you do as well, but yeah, it, yeah. You know, it's, it, the story just got uh, vaguely uh, nasty with this latest reprising. Let's call, let's call it evil. Let's yeah, call let's it, do let's call, call it evil. It, let's call it not, not evil, but this is part of a pattern of Google insiders, especially the huge insiders. If you go to secform4.com and type Goog up on top, you get a graph, and this is podcasting, so I'm just going to have to describe it. It is nothing but red bars down, and it there's so many of them. It's a bit like that scene in The Untouchables where Al Capone beats that guy to death with a bat, and the <laughs> blood just comes flowing out over the oh. rug. It's $11 billion worth of share dumping by high-level insiders since uh, October of 04. Eric Schmidt is responsible for something like $1.5 billion worth of dumping on his own. The people who run Google, they don't care about the people who buy the shares of Google. And the people who are being bludgeoned with the bat, the shareholders. Exactly. I, I blame it on that mantra. You know, if you say, don't think of a white polar bear, you can't help but think <laughs> of a white polar bear, right? So they're, they're going to be evil if they keep that up. So just how much is Twitter worth? The Wall Street Journal reported this week that Twitter is nearing a deal for as much as $100 million in new funding from seven investors, including T. Rowe Price. Our colleague Dan DeZombach covered this story and said he sees two possibilities for why investors would pay up for Twitter. One, Twitter has a business model but is keeping it secret. (laughs) Two, there is no business model. Investors want Twitter's assets, its users, its real-time search, and they want the company to be acquired. So the question is, what is the likely scenario for Twitter? The, 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 I'm sorry, to that first point, that they have a business model, but they keep it secret. Is that like Nixon's secret plan to end the Vietnam War? It very well okay. may be just like that. Yeah, what they should do is they should- like, Except it, that people might believe the, the Twitter one. <laughs> <laughs> they should go out back with some, some uh, two by fours and some hammers and some nails and build a stand, get a, a, a container of country time powder, Mix it with some water, and then they have a business model yeah. that's 100% better than the one that they don't have right now. It, it, more, more seriously, there's a way in which they could have a business model, but they would have to fundamentally change what it is that they do. Seth and I were talking about this before the podcast. They could hire a bunch of folks to come in and help businesses aggregate the information that is uh, provided for them, and then have sophisticated analytics that uh, are better than what people can have uh, in an off-the-shelf kind of way right now, and then serve that up to businesses. As a retail model, I just don't see how they uh, are, are profitable ever. And the irony is that 
that journal article, or at least if it's the same one I read, said that this $100 million is to give them time to figure out what their business model is. I think there's a third possibility here, and it could be that even investors with a lot of money can act like morons with that money. What are they doing? I mean, are they that big of an entity that they, they burn through money this quickly? That's the question. I guess we don't know if they're going to burn that money or what it's for. Is it actually for capital uh, spending uh, along the lines of, of, of investing in a business model? Everything I've seen proposed seems to be stuff they've already given away, sort of aggregating search, all of these other things. Since since Twitter is so open and third parties have, have gobbled up pieces of what could be a value chain, I have a hard time seeing how Twitter could recapture all of that in order to have a business model. But I've just got to say to, to you naysayers, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of one, but but... <laughs> How hard would it be, really, to just put some ads on? Um, you know, either at the top or at the bottom. You know, if you send somebody a hot mail, Yahoo mail, there's a little blurb at the bottom. I mean, granted, they have sidebar ads too, but you know, maybe if you, a short twit gets away with no ads, but if you go, you know, beyond 50 characters, then you have a, an obligatory ad. And to James's point, we are talking about a service with close to 55 million people on it. And, and, and no, a massive you're spectrum. talking about people who've, who've registered to use it, like me. I'm one of those people who registered and j- just to see what it was about way before it was cool, by the way, and, and I figured out <laughs> it wasn't cool and quit. But it is quite a spectrum. Wait, wait, isn't got, it possible that you're just a cranky old man? Possible. <laughs> what do you mean possible? You're not following the right like, Twitter honest, feeds. Yeah, like, honestly, what do you twit to people. I, I started doing stuff like, you know, heading for the can. I'll send you an update in a minute, you know? <laughs> On the can. Everything yeah. came out just fine. But there's, a, to, uh, <laughs> to Twitter's appeal, I mean, if you have a, uh, an audience that includes teenage girls and then senior citizen senators who have uh, latched onto your product, that says something. I'm just not sure what it Staffers says. Staffers of senior citizens, though, or senior citizen senators in a lot of cases. Some be, of those guys yeah, tend those to be do those. That's good twit. Whatever yeah. it's a gaffe, it was a staffer who's, oh. who did the twit. Okay, exit question. That's why you have staffers. Exit question. You got a million dollars to invest in one of these privately held companies, and you have to leave your money there for the next five years. Craigslist, Twitter, or Facebook? That's easy. Craigslist. Wow. Facebook. Really? Why? I I just see it being huge. I mean, everybody's on Facebook. You know, once they, I think it's actually making money. I mean, it's more transparent to, to my knowledge than Craigslist. So I'm going with what I know. Why Craigslist? Well, so Craigslist is, can, can have the eBay model and out eBay eBays uh, in, in terms of local sales and taking a cut of the transactions that are uh, conducted over the Craig Bay listing. Seth? Craig Bay. Craig Bay. There we go. Craig Bay. <laughs> Seth, you go on with Twitter? God, I hate all three of them so much. As, <laughs> as investment ideas that... Uh, I would go to Facebook because I think you'll be able to fool people for five years that Facebook's worth something, and then you can get the heck out. All right, one more point in uh, Craigslist's favor, discreet encounters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought that's the only business they had. (laughs) Send those emails to ShannonZ at fool.com. All right, this week... Some of them end in murder, by the way. (laughs) I know. This week in handheld gadgets, shares of research in motion plummeted on Friday after the BlackBerry maker issued a lower-than-expected third-quarter Earnings forecast. Well, that that's that's not a surprise. I mean, in some way, uh, the, the, in some way, in a, in a major way, they are tethered to the economic cycle as well with uh, business spending. And so, as that ebbs and flows, so will research in motion. Yeah, how many no businesses are there. buying new new Blackberries exactly. across the board? The Zune HD media player is getting rave reviews from PC Magazine. One of the writers there says the Zune could beat the iPod by adding TV, AM radio, and launching a Zune app <laughs> AM creation radio being the operative uh, <laughs> <edition>. <laughs> a multi-mixer. Hey. Only James Early wants AM radio on, a, on, a, on an iPod-type player. Did they really say that? Yeah. 
They're nuts. See, they, don't listen. Don't listen to PC Magazine. D- you know, go, go to Wall Street Journal because they actually hate Microsoft and they have a hard time hating on the Zune, which is which is interesting. The new one. It looks it looks fairly nice. I won't be buying one. I still have the Zune mostly for the subscription service, which I really prefer to the regular model. And I have to say that one one place they've done a, an excellent excellent job is the front end software is a great way to discover music, do all this stuff. is much better than iTunes. And if they can, and they've actually transferred some of that experience to the Zune HD itself. Some, and so I guess some of that is what people like. But it's it's never going to be a player, uh, just because people like their iPods, and, and that's how it is now. Yeah, oh. I mean, from what I know, all ten people who have the Zune love it. I mean, so. it's <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, no uh, one's going to switch. All, you know all how the reviews, the switching ha- costs are high, and nobody's just no one's going to switch. No, well, but nor nor should they switch. I mean, so the the Zune App Store has what ten applications, all of which were written in house by Microsoft. And that's yeah. that's I think going to be the the story of the iPhone and iTouch on down well, the road. Yeah, the Apple way, the way Microsoft them at that point they they yeah, opened Apple they totally opened they opened up the the platform exactly, and, exactly. and that was a, absolutely the right thing to do and and that, it's kind of a, a brave that, business decision cost, because they've yeah. been the most closed uh, ecosystem yeah. of any sort of corporate entity and they did the reverse and look at what what has happened their, yeah. their product became infinitely more valuable yeah. overnight and so nobody is going to switch like beta to VHS yeah. And finally, an unemployed amateur treasure hunter named Terry Herbert found the largest ever haul of Anglo-Saxon gold and silver artifacts while searching a friend's farm in England. No way. Herbert spent five days searching the field alone before realizing that he needed help. He found the stash using a 14-year-old metal detector. The gold alone weighs 11 pounds. Herbert and his friend will split it 50-50, and each could be in line for a reported seven-figure sum Guys, what's the best treasure you've ever stumbled upon? Wow. <laughs> that is, I've been watching a lot That's of History tough. Channel. I just watched the Dark Ages. That is really cool. I hope they don't sell it for it to be melted down. This better go to, you know, real collectors or something. I, I found a 20 outside a bar once and went back inside and bought a pitcher of beer. That, that was pretty good. Yeah, that is, that is, <laughs> that is inspirational. That's what that is. I, I, I once bootied a, uh, a GPS unit I found in a mud puddle, and I actually I figured out how to fi- find where the guy lives. So I, I'm, I feel so guilty. I want to go find him and give it back. It's like a four-hour drive from here, uh, but but one, one day I will. Do you feel guilty? Do you, uh, I don't know. Don't you feel creepy? <laughs> like, you booted up a GPS and found out where the guy lives. Well, it was on there, and I you know I can see his travel history. You know, he's he's quite a world traveler. I mean, I I, I feel this intimate connection with him, including his his, his home location. Maybe a discreet encounter is in order. <laughs> I'll post so. it on Craigslist. <laughs> Wow. Uh, when my brother and I were walking home from grade school to our new house by some railroad tracks near where the big kids used to walk, we found like a Hall's uh, cough drop plastic container full of weed. <laughs> <laughs> and we were like six. And you immediately brought it to a police station? Actually, we did. And they put it in a little thing and did a test and said, oh, yeah, you guys are good. This, you know, this was marijuana. And so we were like, oh, we're such good citizens, you know. So, oh, how that, times have changed. Steve, <laughs> you want to jump on mic here? What, what, what greatest treasure you've ever stumbled uh, well, upon? As, as a newly married man, I should probably say my wife. Oh, I oh. <laughs> hope you're listening, honey. I, there, there's one other. I, I remember being about 12 and with uh, my next door neighbor walking down the street and finding an adult magazine on the road. And that was the ultimate jackpot. That is a score. At 12, wow. nothing better than that. Wow. So your two finalists were your new bride. And a and porno a magazine. magazine. <laughs> okay. This is definitely an R-rated podcast this time around. I think it is. All right, guys, as we 
head into the next week and close out September. Give me one stock that is on your radar. Shannon, we'll start with you. Uh, Procter & Gamble. Ticker symbol is PG, in case you've not heard of it. To me, it's the kind of stock that's going to do quite well, uh, irrespective of the direction of the economy. It won't race as far ahead uh, during you know robust growth periods as maybe some of the racier stocks that have uh, uh, held sway since March. Uh, but I think for the long haul, it's a great company trading at a very attractive valuation. James? I, I think Shannon's company just reminded me that I forgot to put on uh, deodorant today. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been looking at, at retail REITs. You know, I've been bearish on REITs for a good while, um, but but I have seen some dramatic operating improvement in, in at least one particular REIT. I won't name its name in case I go with it for my income investor newsletter, but, but at some point, the tide is going to turn for REITs. It might be next year, and you want to be on board before that happens. So you're not going to give us anything? Wow. I, I, my hands are tied, Chris. I would <laughs> if I could. A REIT ETF, perhaps. A REIT ETF. There you go. There you you go. Spread it around. Well, right. your hands being tied certainly explains the lack of deodorant. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually alerted to that by the cloud of flies around oh. James here. I biked in today, too. Wow. Just I, to catch up. Unfortunately, I have to pick on a stock that we have over at Hidden Gems, American Oriental Bioengineering. They've had yet another, some people might call it a gaffe. I call it a major screw-up of disclosure if if everything we've seen is true and have every reason to believe it is, which is that they've got a director who has this company who was getting not huge amounts of money from the company where he's a director, but none of this was properly disclosed in the uh, annual filings. And it's just sort of one in the history of suboptimal disclosures from this Chinese-based company. Uh, if you hold it, you need to take a look at whether or not you want to stay up at night wondering what's next. That's currently what I'm wondering, and I do hold it. Fair enough. Seth Jason, James Early, Shannon Zimmerman. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Thank you, Chris. Thanks for listening to this edition of Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Do your homework and make your own decisions. And remember, the conversation continues 24-7 at fool.com. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next time.